Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hey, this is Steve Balton, and welcome back to My Turning Point. This week, really interesting conversation with the great Danny Elfman. We go deep into the unconscious, talk about his whole career from Boingo Boingo to working with Tim Burton and much more. So hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. No, you know, back in the day. Yeah. Um, you know, like my odds would have been 50-50. And today they take you through the calculations. They were like, you're 98% chance to be fine. And yeah. But and I one literally, week? surgery was last Friday. By Tuesday, I was home and walking. That's amazing. My, I remember my dad being in the hospital for weeks. Yeah, my uh, cardiologist is older, and he was telling me the same thing. Like, back in the day, out of precautions, they would keep him in for, like, three weeks. Yeah. Wow. And it's funny, because, again, like, I, this was one I was excited to do. You know, I did the Forbes piece around the Coachella set, which was absolutely amazing. You and I have spoken multiple times in the past. I mean, it's a... I was going to say it's a busy time for you, but when the hell is it not a busy time for you? <laughs> These days? Yeah. I don't... I don't know the answer to that. I wish I did. No, when is uh, I? You know this. This has been probably the busiest year of my life, actually. And um, I don't know what to say. I should be like golfing or something. Instead, I'm having like the busiest year of of my long career. Well, do you golf? No. Well, maybe that's why you're not golfing. Well, that's probably why I don't do. Mm. No, unfortunately, I do no daytime activities at all. Uh, Nothing in the sunlight ever. Like if it's tennis, if it's golf, if it's anything that involves sunlight, just, you know, figure I'm not there. Well, you know, it's funny uh, on a serious note. It's interesting. You say that this has been the busiest year of your career. Do you feel like that started during COVID? Because I know for me as a journalist, I was busier during COVID than at any other point because 
people reprioritize things. And I was finding all of a sudden, people were like, sure. Stevie Nicks was like, I got 90 minutes to talk to you on a Friday night. I got nothing else to do. Like you shifted your priorities of life. And so did it start for you during COVID where you noticed that, you know, because also you had time to take on all these projects. Well, it was heavenly for me, which I hate to say because all of my family and most of my friends were really suffering in that period, you know, because so many of my friends and family work in film and or musicians and, you know, every performer was just going through hell. And for me, I'd set aside a year, 2020, where it's the first year in 38 years I took no film work. I'd elected to take no film work. I was really just going to do live concerts because I had a bunch of different concerts booked. Um, first, of course, there was the original intention of Coachella in 2020, but there was Nightmare Before Christmas, there was Elfman Burton, and there was uh, um, the Violin Concerto was opening in London. Um, and I was scheduled to do my first of three commissions. You know, I had one for 2020, 21, 22. Um, and so it just looked like it was going to be a busy year between classical, between film, concerts, and um, and return to some rock and roll. And of course, it all went away uh, just weeks before Coachella was going to happen. So I found myself with more free time than I ever imagined what to do with. And of course, out of that came big mess, which I wasn't expecting to do. And um, so it wasn't a busy time. It was a really fertile time time and uh but it's the first time in 40 years i haven't had a deadline let me put it that way so it was a really interesting and novel feeling to be doing a project that had no deadline and literally my manager and i we had to make a phony deadline you know i started writing in april and come august it's like we got to make a you know we got to make a deadline because i'll never stop and then what happened in 22 was everything that had canceled in 20 and 21 all rescheduled for the same period. So I had this totally insane thing of three concert pieces with world premieres in three in Vienna in and two in London um, happening within a couple months of each other. And like literally I was like going Vienna, London, Coachella, then Costa Mesa for the second performance of the London, uh, my percussion concerto. And um, it's like, wow, who in the world ever gets to do this? I mean, first off, having three concert premieres in the same year is ridiculous. Uh, and then adding a 30-year comeback uh, on a rock and roll stage is even added just total insanity to everything. So yeah, it's been crazy. And then, you know, I finished Coachella then I had the third commission, which was originally the first one, the National Youth Orchestra of Great Britain in the proms in August. And then soon thereafter, we're already starting to prep for, oh, Hollywood Bowl. And um, already I've got my next commission that I'm also on, plus finishing White Noise and Doctor Strange. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, it's just been, and Wednesday. So let me ask you, do you enjoy now the craziness? Or do you want to find back to like that balance where it's a lot to go from no deadline to the insanity? So have you found that happy medium for you yet? No, but I, I hope to return to a happy medium. You know, right now I'm just jammed into two things that have been waiting that uh, the Hollywood Bowl kind of interrupted. 
And, um, you know, it's like by the time I, November started, I was already a month behind <laughs> in my next commission. So it's, it's kind of like always, it's like having 20 deadlines and no matter what you do, you're behind on all of them all the time. <laughs> and, uh, that's a little too insane. Um, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if I were a film composer with a big crew and there's a bunch of projects, TV projects and film projects, but you know, the modern way, which I just try trying hard not to fall into is to have like a, a crew. And it's like, you could take two things on at once. You could take three things on at once. You know, you could do whatever you want because you've got this big crew. And I still pride myself in having the smallest crew in Hollywood for a film composer. You know, I have a total of three and, uh, you know, and that's compared to, a, you know, there are more than one person that have uh, 20 or 30 uh, people in their crew and it gets, it goes up from there. It's so interesting. I mean, you know, but for you, how much fun is it to be able to mix all of this stuff now and to be at the point where you can enjoy mixing all of it? Because, you know, obviously, again, like you say, you stepped away from rock and roll for some time. Well, mixing it up is fun. I mean, I, uh, I love contrast. And the reason I started doing concert music as opposed to film music, I mean, as well as film music, was to get the contrast because the uh, classical co commissions allowed me to write in a way that I simply can't write for film. And I love that contrast of going from a concerto to a film to a concerto to a film and doing that. But adding now <laughs> the new element with the big mess and you know the new performance, um, that took it to a whole other level of intensity. You know, like I said, within one week going from um, the concert hall with the Vienna uh, Symphony Orchestra doing my uh, concello concerto to co cello concerto to Coachella. That's kind of a tongue twister right there, isn't it? <laughs> Was pretty glorious. Um, you know, I loved the uh, extreme contrast of that. Well, it's interesting too. Do you feel like, you know, I'm kind of fascinated with coming back to something. So do you feel like you had gotten to a place where you were comfortable in your life that you because I think what happens, look, there's a natural cycle of life. I talk about this with people all the time. You're a kid. You get close to your family, your hometown. That's your identity. You become a teenager. You can't wait to get the fuck away from that to forge your own identity. And then you get older and you start to realize the influence it had on you. And did you reach a point where you're like, I'm now comfortable with embracing what rock and roll and Oingo Boingo and everything that happened with that has meant to me? Yes and no. I mean, it's complicated because um, really, I never intended to do... Well, first off, uh, you know, up until two years ago, I never intended to do any of it. There was no desire on my part to go and do a new album. And there's no, there was no desire to start performing. But it literally just happened spontaneously, like most things in my life. You know, my manager for 12 years has been trying to get me out to Coachella. I finally went out in 2019 after literally a decade of, come on, come on, come on. And um, what actually tipped me over was not what most people expect. Um, I didn't see people on the concert stage and go, I want to get back on that concert stage. I saw the big screens and I said, oh, shit. I could do something and put some wild stuff up there. So I met 
I, you know, I, I went and saw some of the shows and hung and I went into the trailer of Paul to let the uh, promoter. And he said, so what do you think? And I said, well, um, how about something where I mix everything up? And it was just totally spontaneous of that moment. Old stuff, new stuff, film stuff in the mishmash that makes no sense at all. But I will fill those screens with some crazy fucking shit that, that will really excite me. And, um, and he just said, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> no, cut to two years later where I'm actually putting it together. And it's like, I thought it was the, I thought I'd come up with the worst idea of my life. Literally. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm never going to blurt stuff out without thinking it through again, because I'm, I've got a history of doing that. You know, I'll just, how about blah, 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 blah. And then it's like, oh my God, now I have to do it. It seemed like a spontaneous idea of like mixing this shit up. But when I was putting it together and trying to rehearse it, I realized I, I, I don't know who this is for. This doesn't make any sense at all. And it's almost like I'm putting together a show for four different audiences. Boingo Boingo fans, any fans that I may have picked up on Big Mess, um, my film music fans, and then there's a whole separate audience just for Nightmare Before Christmas. And um, so my name is known throughout totally separately in these different worlds. So putting this all together on a stage is going to be a catastrophe. And I literally felt like I had built a train and I got on it and I was heading towards a train wreck guaranteed by my own design. I already knew that the track stopped right at the bottom of a big hill and, um, and I'm going off. When I walked down on stage on Coachella before the show, I felt like I was walking out to a firing squad. <laughs> I mean, literally, mentally, I was like, none of this makes any sense. I don't know who the fucking audience even is out there for Coachella, and they're going to fucking kill me. And I deserved it because I put myself out here. It's like I created my own ruin. And the fact that it didn't work out that way is astonishing to me. I love this because I'm a big believer in, a con in unconscious, subconscious. Like, I think a lot of good writing, I think most good writing comes from the subconscious. So I'm cracking up as you're telling me this because you're like, I don't know who the fuck the audience is for this. Well, the audience for this is Danny Elfman. Because I think at some point, as an artist, all those pieces come together. And that's what I was getting at. And it's the natural cycle of life. You know, you do start to embrace everything that you were and it comes together. So it's funny. And I think, of course, as a fan, you like my favorite songwriter of all time is Tom Waits. You know, yeah. you look at how the way all that shit comes together and it's all flows naturally. It's well, so seamless to go from the heart of Saturday night to what's he building in there to take it with me, you know. But so, again, I think it's like it's funny. Can you look at it now and understand who the audience was for that? Now I, I can grasp it a little more, especially since the Hollywood Bowl. Because even after Coachella went well, when they offered me that show, I said, it'll never work. You know, I said, the beauty in hindsight of Coachella was that it's a surprise attack. You know, the people that buy their tickets for Coachella don't even know who's going to play there when they buy the tickets. They don't even know who the headliners are. So you have a built-in audience. And um, you don't know who they are, but it's a built-in audience. I said, but I've never sold a ticket for a solo show in my life. And I said, Jack Skellington could play two nights at the Hollywood Bowl, but Danny Elfman can't. And I said, it's going to be so embarrassing when we get up there and there's like 
Well, first off, I said it's going to be embarrassing when we cancel the show or cancel both shows because of lack of ticket sales. And the other thing, it'll be embarrassing to go into a 16,000 seat hall with, you know, 750 people sitting out there, you know, and it's just going to look kind of empty. But it, it didn't work out that way. But again, that's the way my brain is wired. It's like, okay, you want to do it, but I'm telling you, it's not going to work. It's going to be a disaster. Danny Elfman doesn't sell tickets. You know, I'm a guy with no hit records. You got to remember that. I've never had a hit album. I've never had a hit record. And people who come back and do tours from stuff, you know, it's like they had dozens of hits. They had million selling albums. They had, you know, they built up this massive fan base. And I, I have none of that. So it's crazy. No, I mean, but it's funny because again, I mentioned Tom Waits. You look at like Tom Waits never had a hit record in the States. Good point. And, you know, you know, and look, any sentence that puts me in the same universe as Tom Waits, I'm so happy with. <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't be more pleased than to just be referred to even in the same paragraph because he, he's one of my, seriously, one of my idols. Uh, I mean, amazing. But it's interesting because I think that, you know, I, I mean, I talk about this with people all the time, right? Who has the greatest career? And in many respects, to me, it is Tom Waits because if he wants to tour, he can tour. He can do whatever he wants. There's an audience for anything he wants to do. He's respected by his peers, but he can walk into the market and it lets us a geek like you or me. No one's going to even know who he is. So it's funny, though. Are there people besides him that you look at and realize like, I mean, again, you look at a guy like when we just lost John Prime during COVID and the way the music industry, you know, the average person doesn't know who the fuck John Prine is. But for musicians, he's yeah. an icon. So it's yeah. interesting to think about all this, you know, and it's interesting the way, but of course, as an artist, it's funny because you say this is the way my brain is wired. Every artist is wired to think that, you know, the worst. <laughs> I think I'm a little more wired to expecting the worst than most people. <laughs> I, I think I've always been that way. I'm the eternal pessimist. I'm the guy who looks at the half-filled glass, you know, the glass half-filled, and I only see a quarter filled. You know, it's like, it's not even like, is it half full or half empty? I said, what do you mean? There's only 12 drops in that glass. There's not even a question. So uh, I'm a little bit extreme on that side. But wait, so now with all the success you've been having and all the interest in it, does it allow you to become, at least to now see the glass is half full? Yes, it does bring me up to the glass half full. Because, I mean, the shows at the Bowl just, again, I was astonished. First off, I was so blew my mind that so many people came out to see me. And the energy in the house was so great. And, you know, it really, it was just like, I just couldn't believe it. I was like, wow, you know, here I am going from like weird new stuff that they barely know to like old stuff from 30 or 40 years ago to like film music. And I can't seem to derail them. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I was ready for like mountains of criticism of like, what are you putting all this shit together? Doesn't, you know, it's like, why are you doing this? It's so inauthentic. You know, for a rock and roll musician, you're supposed to be something. You're supposed to identify clearly with what you are. And I've never been able to do that. You know, I'm still, I, I gave up even trying to figure out what I was many years ago. Because I just realized that most of the bands I really love, there's a very strong and clear identity of what and who they are. 
And I've always envied that because I have no idea. I've never had any idea. I'm a chameleon. I mean, I, I'm doing something. I'm, you know, I'm in, I'm in a theater group. I'm really happy. And then I hear ska music from England. And I just go, oh, I want to start a ska band. Then suddenly I'm in a rock band. And then Tim Burton comes along and offers me a film. And suddenly it's like, oh, I want to be a film composer. Then I'm film composing. And it's like, ah, I need a bigger challenge. I want to try to write a symphony or a concerto. And then I'm doing that. I'm going, what the fuck am I doing? I don't know how to do this shit. And then, you know, Jack Skellington enters my life and it's like a whole other thing. And so it's just all a, a series of like weird accidents that just keep pushing me through doors that I find myself, the only common denominator I can think of is that most of these doors I've gone through, I've not been welcomed and that's worked strongly to my favor. Well, it's funny, as you're talking about this, there are two artists that come to mind because I start to think about like, who else would, for me as a fan, I would want to see push all this stuff together. But before I name my two, I'm curious, <clears throat> are there are there artists that you think of that, you know, influence you in the way that they could walk into every world? Well, I mean, the first one that kind of comes to mind um, I, I had the pleasure of collabor collaborating with on The Big Mess, which would be Trent Reznor. You know, I've got just a huge, huge respect for Trent and what he's done and how he managed his career going from rock and roll to film in a way that was completely unique and with a strong identity, yet not leaning on his rock and roll roots in order to create his film identity. He just created an absolutely fresh new identity. And to me, that's what it's all about. It's like, if you're going to step through a door, you got to embrace it and just take it on and not go for the comfort zone of what do people know you've done for the last however many years and rely on that to say, yeah, here's the sound you're used to, but now I'm putting it in another medium. You know, Trent did it the way I would try to do it, which is just to approach it absolutely fresh. It's a new medium. You start from scratch and you develop a new sound. So he he's, a, you know, one that I feel has really pulled it off uh, with great success. No, one of my favorites in the world. So he was one of the two I was thinking of. And the other, of course, though, it's funny because you say you're a chameleon. I mean, but it, it's interesting because, you know, Bowie. Oh, of course. Yeah. The greatest chameleon I, of all time. The greatest take, chameleon of all time. Now, I, I have absolutely no doubt that if Bowie had ever like suddenly approached classical music or film music, um, you know, which unfortunately we didn't really get to hear that the sides of him. But I, I just feel that if he had, he would have done something really fresh and really great because of that chameleon quality, exactly what you're saying, that ability. I think he would have embraced it just from the ground up. And um, I, I, don't you wish you could have heard Bowie's like first orchestral film score? Like, don't you wish you could have heard Bowie doing a symphony or a concerto? Um, how great would that have been? Well, it's so interesting. And, and rather than just sit and talk about other artists, let's tie this back in because we're going to have to wrap up in a second. But when you start to look at the other people who've done this, or Joni Mitchell, you know, and the way that she was able to go from pop and folk to these intricate, amazing jazz pieces does it give you a different appreciation for what you've done? And you can, like you say, anything that puts you in the same paragraph as Tom Waits. And as an artist, you're not going to sit there and compare yourself to, but realize that there is this world that does exist. 
and other artists have done it successfully, does it also give you more appreciation for being able to do it? And I guess, you know, we'll, we'll start with that part of it. Does it give you more well, appreciation? No, it, of course it does, you know, because to me, it's all about eclectic. You know, when I, before I became a film composer, um, before I even became a musician, I was a fan of uh, Bernard Herrmann. You know, I only became a film composer because I was a film music fan. So I was a fan turned craftsman, you know, out of the blue. But the thing I loved about Herman and why he was always my inspiration was how incredibly eclectic he was as a composer. I mean, he could do any genre. He can approach heavy, light, funny, intense, and still put his personality into it. And so from even before I was a musician, the eclectic musicians were always the ones I was really most fascinated by. And of course, you mentioned Bowie and Bowie, you know, highest on my list of just pure, even though he didn't move into these specific realms that we're talking about, but as a pop rock artist, there was just, I, I just, nobody to me was ever more eclectic and had the ability to completely reinvent himself so many times. And that was always the beauty uh, for me, reinvention, to be eclectic, to move into, to move. It's all, once again, I keep saying it's moving out of your comfort zone. That's everything to me. Um, you know, every door I try to smash through is motivated by the fact that I got to get the fuck out of my comfort zone or I'm going to die. And if I can burst into a world where I'm extremely unwelcome, better for me because I'm confrontative that way. And if I feel like there's a lot of hostility in this new room I'm in, I'm just going to turn it to my advantage. And that's exactly what happened with film music. And that's what's happening with classical music. Um, you know, the classical symphony orchestras don't want to fucking know who I am. I'm a successful film composer. It's like, what, what, what are you doing on our side of the fence? And when I became a film composer, it's like, what are you doing? You're a rock musician. You didn't go to music school. Get out of our world. It's like you don't have a place here. And it's like that attitude was the best thing that could have happened to me because then I'm out to prove something and I'm really motivated and negative energy really fuels me. So um, it just, it's been a constant series of like moving into things, feeling unwelcomed at the party and going, this is exactly the party I want to be at. Nobody wants me here. Good. <laughs> so obvious question as we wrap up, What's the next party to crash? Oh, man. Um, you know, there are so many parties to crash. I mean, I could look at it in the smaller doors of musical doors of things that I haven't tried that I really want to. I mean, even the commission that I'm doing right now is making me insane with difficulty because it's a small piece. It's a chamber piece. And I'm used to writing big symphonic pieces. and the fact that it's a small, limited number of weird instruments is making me crazy. Now, I know that Stravinsky would have just gone, eh, what's this? You know, but big deal. Bernard Herrmann would have said, ah, this is nothing. And Shostakovich would have gone, eh, piece of cake. But for me, it's hell. And ultimately, hopefully, I come out of this hell having feel like I found a way into it. But then there's, there's bigger doors, you know. I've tried to create projects. I've written a few projects, you know. There's a lot of doors for me to bust through. And um, God willing, you know, if I could just live a little longer, maybe I'll have a shot at it. This came up recently in an interview, and then we'll wrap up on this. But 
as you're talking about this, this is fascinating to me. Who's the greatest rebel of all time? <laughs> Man, you're asking these really hard questions. You know, I'm, I'm never good with like, that's like a favorite song. Every time I've been asked to do like favorite songs, I break them into three, you know, threes and threes. And um, there's many rebels. I mean, and what the first that comes to mind in my brain would be Igor Stravinsky, a total rebel. Uh, when he came along, it just turned classical music on its head. Um, Louis Armstrong, an incredible rebel. And when he, when he embraced jazz, um, he was just inspiring musicians everywhere, everywhere he went. He was doing something completely new, completely fresh. I mean, when Miles Davis came along, John Coltrane, complete rebels. I mean, again, they were turning things around in a way that was like nobody had heard what they were doing. Um, when Marlon Brando became an actor, it's like, wow, you know, it's like, where's this come from? Nobody's seen this kind of thing before. There's, the world is filled with these rebels that have just gone, where did this come from? Trent Reznor's one, you know, it's like the first Nine Inch Nails. It's like, what the fuck is this? Um, Kurt Corbain was certainly one. It's like, Jesus Christ, he like changed rock music completely over, overnight almost. Um, you know, these are rebels. They just came out of nowhere and you hear what they're doing and you go, what the fuck is this? And three years, four years later, it's like everything's trying to imitate that. And well, no, um, it's because when you talk about to me, like, you know, crashing all these parties, that's what I think of is the rebel. Oh, well, I mean, I don't think of myself as a rebel, you know, because I've never done a thing. I don't know. It's like, uh, I just think of myself as a great party crasher. <laughs> and that when I'm in there, I figure out a way to find the tools to make the best use that I can out of it. So I don't, I don't see myself as a rebel. I see myself as a ghost and a party crasher that just likes going through doors and like going, I've never done this. I want to do it. Well, I mean, it's funny from the outside perspective, that strikes me very much as a rebel, but you know, again, we all see ourselves differently than how other people see us. So yeah. Correct. Um, that's true. Cool. Fascinating. What do you want to add that I didn't ask you about? Damn. I mean, <laughs> I have no idea. You've been asking me so many interesting questions. Um, I, you know, what, what would you like to ask me that you didn't ask me about? I think I got it in. If you know, okay. I mean, I'm sure later cool. on other stuff will come up. It's funny because I know, and Peter, I know we got to wrap up, but look, this is interesting to me. As you've gone back and embraced your past, are there things that you appreciate now in a different way? Are there things that you can look back on and say, all right, I get it now, or I understand this, or like, you know, well, can yeah. you look at all these stages of your career and, and you know, you almost start to look at things with the perspective of a fan because you're no, so far removed from it. You're absolutely right. And that's a good question. And it's true because I've been almost obsessive about never listening to anything I do once it's recorded. So in other words, when I was with Oingo Boingo, once an album was recorded, I would never listen to that again. Once I left Oingo Boingo in 95, I never listened to any of it again. Once I finished a film score, um, once it's recorded, I will never listen to that film score again. And, but I was forced in recent years to do that because 
I had to put together the Tim Burton suites for the Elfman Burton show. You know, I had to put together 15 suites for this concert, whatever, eight, nine years ago. And I literally went back and listened to 15 scores that I had not heard since I'd written them. And it was really interesting. And then when I was putting together the Coachella show, I went back and listened to the Oingo Boingo songs that I, I've not listened to these in minimum 25 years, maybe 35 years for some of these. And it was a strange experience because here I am listening to my film scores, listening to my rock stuff. And some of it makes me go, oh my God, this is like, and make me throw up. And others is like, well, that's not bad. That's kind of interesting. And it was really interesting on both sides going backwards because with the film scores going from Pee Wee to Alice in Wonderland, I can hear the, my technique growing each film. Like I could do more, I could do more, I could do more, which was my goal. I mean, I was just hungrily soaking things up, trying to learn how to get a bigger toolbox available to work with. And, but hearing Pee Wee's Big Adventure, my first score didn't make me cringe. It was like, all right, that was really, really simple, incredibly simple compared to what I do now, but that doesn't make it bad. Maybe there's something to learn from that. And then when I went back through the Oingo Boingo stuff, I can go, all right, there's definitely songs that, oh, why did I do this way? But then there's these ones that go, oh, I can hear, I was trying to stretch out here. And I can hear the simplicity of the earliest work that I did, you know, from the um, early 80s, early to the mid 80s and go, yeah. And, and I did develop an appreciation for some of the very early work. And then I can hear this odd progression where it was like, Clearly, I'm trying to break out of a mold here. Now I'm in the 90s and I'm getting more and more frustrated, which is why as soon as 1990 hit, I really wanted to get out of the band, you know, and I kept it going for another five years. But I can hear all of the records I did then where I'm trying to push through and, you know, I just wasn't able to. It just wasn't happening, you know, and it was frustrating me more and more. But I, I did come back to all these feelings you know, I can hear what I was doing, but I started in the 80s. I can hear what I was trying to get happening in the 90s with the film work. I can hear the technique that I was learning growing and growing and growing. But also kind of I came away with sometimes it's good to abandon all that. And so that's the point I guess I'm coming to, you know, um, going up on stage uh, a couple of weeks ago and playing like Only a Lad, you know, like one of the first songs I ever wrote with Oingo Boingo. And listening to Pee Wee's Big Adventure live on stage, you know, now I'm like, I'm proud of those things. You know, one of them was just like pure crazy energy. <laughs> they were both kind of pure crazy energy <laughs> in a different way, but um, with a simplicity that now I could kind of appreciate in a weird way that, um, you know, it was just a very basic thing. It was just coming out of adrenaline and energy and no sense of, does it, is it good? Is it bad? Does it, you know, I, when I wrote Pee Wee's Big Adventure, I expected it to get thrown out of the movie, the score. Uh, when I wrote, you know, these early Oingo Boingo songs, I didn't expect anybody would ever hear them. You know, I thought, that, I thought you know, we were just going to play them in little clubs for a couple hundred people and that was all it was ever going to be. So I knew that it wasn't commercial, just like with Pee Wee. I knew that it wasn't stuff connected to, there was no chance only that becoming a hit song. And there was no chance in my mind of Pee Wee's Big Adventure being more than a weird, quirky kind of 
miscreant, you know? And, and, um, so it's interesting going back and hearing them now and, you know, both became popular in their own ways. And, um, so I do try to learn from that in this last experience of concerts, both coming back to the, the Tim Burton early work for the Elfman Burton show, coming back to nightmare before Christmas for those concerts, um, and coming back to early, early work with Ongo Boingo for these latest concerts that I've just done. Well, it's funny because that you was say, a really long-winded answer. I'm so sorry. No, it was a great answer. It's funny though because you start off by saying how you didn't listen. You never, you know, as soon as something was done, you wouldn't listen to it. Well, here you'll appreciate this joke. How do you tell the narcissistic sociopath? How the musician who admits to listening to their own music. The music that the musician that what? It admits to listening to their own music. <laughs> okay. Ninety-nine point five percent of musicians never ever ever listen to their own stuff well you know it's like uh it's good to know i know we got to wrap up this was a great pleasure so oh, much fun you. pleasure was mine thank you i love this thanks a lot have a good one you too. hey this is steve balton you've been listening to my turning point with special guest danny elfman thanks